0: Hello. Hello, Hola. hola,
1: bonjour, bienvenidos, and welcome to Radio
0: Natura. Radio Natura,
1: to Radio Natura,
0: voices from around the world,
1: bringing you all things related to nature and sustainability, rethinking what it means to live in peace with nature, and imagining a brighter future, brought to you by the Pax Natura Foundation. Welcome back to Radio Natura. I'm here for the third and final interview with Hugh Bollinger here at his house tonight. Uh, tonight we're going to be talking about what you can do to get involved with ecology. Uh, so, Hugh, can you introduce yourself again?
0: Good evening, and it's a pleasure to be here uh, talking to you all. It is Hugh Bollinger, and uh, trustee for HOX Natura, and really pleased that um, Jordan Anderson has taken the time to show an interest in the whole field of uh, ecological restoration, restoration, environmental restoration. If you will remember, the first episode dealt primarily with ecological principles and tools that are available to utilize for restoration uh, projects, and the second episode dealt with case studies where they were applied in um, discrete and very different ways. This episode, as Jordan mentions, is about opportunities for
1: you as a listener to maybe get involved in in a project of your own. So, as we talked about in the last two episodes, ecology and restoration are huge topics. And some of the case studies in the second episode may seem a little intimidating to some of our listeners as we're talking about restoring whole landscapes and rivers. But it doesn't have to be that intimidating or on such a huge scale. So, today we'll be talking about what you can do in your own life, in your own backyard, to help make your environment more healthy and somewhere that most that anyone needs to start in that process is with education so Hugh can you talk a bit about education and where can we go what should we be be looking for education is so existential to to
0: growing a knowledge base uh, and, there, and there's so many ways that you could do that And ecology is a big field restoration is a huge dimension of that but um, Getting some additional education is really, really important, and the first place one might think to start is maybe a a course at your local community college or university or maybe online, but there are many avenues that you can tap into that are there existing in education. Other spots where uh, you can certainly have available to you would be bookstores, bookstores love to have Entire shelves of of books and titles on um, environmental topics and ecology specifically. Your local library is another resource, whether it's a a book, maybe a a videotape, a film, um, an audio book. There are so many avenues you could investigate and see whether there are um, subjects that interest you specifically in your own town or region. And one of the things we're gonna do as we conclude uh, the series, there will be a list of resources that we think, uh, Jordan and I have put together, that might lead you to um, investigate. It's not gonna be a library of of material, but it'll be a variety of um, different kinds of books, films, um, other resources that you might look into. I think it's very important to see what's going on in your local community, initiatives that are maybe already underway there, whether it's dealing with uh, air or water pollution, dust here in our part of the country is an issue. Um, There must be environmental organizations looking into or working already uh, where you live on something like this, and it would be worth your effort to try to search them out, get to know some of the people. Um, It's really important to understand what's going on locally before you try to think globally <laughs> I think it's it's an old phrase but it's really important to, uh, whether you, you get involved with people that are building trails in your your or beach
1: projects there's things going on where you live people find it difficult to get involved in these projects but there's always something going on locally and there's always people that need your help i, I give a one little case study it's not local but it's a, a
0: A city that made decisions that I know about, because I had an office there one time, and it's the city-state of Singapore, which is basically on the equator, and they they get a lot of rain. But when they established themselves as an independent country, one of the things that the Singaporeans did, which um, in their city design, and as they grew their their city into a world-class city, um, was to plant trees everywhere. Um, if you, The first time I went to the, uh, Singapore, I could not believe that every avenue, whether it's the main drags in the downtown, out into some rural areas, were completely covered in trees. And they're filled with birds and monkeys and, and, and butterflies. I mean, it, it, the city is absolutely beautiful because of all the trees that they have produced and grow there. Nashville, Tennessee uh, has also, it's a, it's a city of trees everywhere you go it's not only beautifies the location but the people recognize the trees offer environmental benefits too so take a look around where you live and see people that might be doing things that that are involved in in these sorts of initiatives because they will get you involved with understanding environmental matters
1: and that's an important that's a good example of local politics people voting for what they want to see in their city, and then implementing it. It's something anyone can do.
0: There's going to be a, 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 an ecosystem of some sort where you live, whether it's a prairie, a forest, a desert, a beach, um, a marine coastal zone, a swamp. It, uh, every one of these places has different um, evolutionary... The plants are different, the evolutionary uh, structures are different, the ecosystems are different. Learn about them, and it's, it's a lot of fun to do. It makes sense to try to reach out to somebody who may be a, a local botanic garden or, or a zoological park that could be a mentor. Uh, they may even have programs at the, those sorts of institutions that you could, could join um, for an extra educational time. Uh, there, there, we will have a list of things, but there are many avenues to approach. Education is very important. and. There's no one-size-fits-all. Somebody might just want to take a course. Others might want to read a book. Others might want to learn uh, from a, a mentor about the local landscape. So, again, ecology is a very big topic. Getting involved is a big topic. But you shouldn't be, you should get involved. That, I think, is important.
1: Definitely, everyone should be able to get involved. And so, getting involved a lot of times looks like volunteering for a project Uh Volunteering your time. So where uh, where could you go to do that? What are some yeah, organizations? The, you can it's get? a it's
0: a wonderful question and a very important one. Uh, most environmental projects uh, are run by volunteers. They might have one or two professionals that, that are the the guide the guides or the managers, but the projects get done by volunteers. And there there's so many that one could think about. Um, I'm personally familiar with a national organization called the Conservation Alliance. And it was established by the the, the outdoor industry, the people that get out in, into hiking and camping. And it's they specifically have projects from from the Arctic to Baja in Mexico for people to get involved with at the local level, something that's going on. Whether it's a trail cleanup, a beach cleanup, Sometimes it's a reforestation project. Twice a year, TCA gives grants to various local organizations to implement projects. So we'll have a link to their website so you can can see some of the things they're already doing. Maybe there's a project right in your area. Um, Another one uh, I know closely is called the Watershed Committee of the Ozarks. I mentioned it in the case studies. The people of Missouri set themselves up to fund an organization to help restore rivers and all the year long even in the winter this organization based in Springfield Missouri looks for volunteers to get involved to, to uh, clean, do river cleanups for example and they're very active. Beach cleanups are common in California Oregon also. One that I've always found locally and internationally which can, can really be something to look at Our wildlife rescue centers. Two examples, one comes from Australia, it's called the Koala Hospital, and it was run by basically two vets and, and entirely by volunteers, and they got in a situation a couple years ago with massive wildfires where thousands of koalas were, were, were killed, others were badly burned, and so people would find them on their farms and even in their backyards. They'd bring the, 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 the wounded animal to the center for care and, and, and hopefully recovery to re-release. And they had so much work to do. So much They had to put word out and got volunteers from all over Australia to come to help them. But more importantly, one of the people there helped the hospital start a, a crowd-sourced funding campaign. They tried to, to. They reached out with a goal initially of twenty-five thousand Australian dollars. When it finally closed a month and a half later, they had received donations from around the world exceeding a million dollars. And wow. they had they had so much success, they started distributing uh, monies to other rescue centers, to other places around Australia. That's that's one a very good example you, you got to think, again, the education, as you get through the process of educating yourself, you will learn about projects. You'll be able to identify things that strike you as really interesting. And I'm sure if you um, reach out to the office or the managers who run the program, they will say, we need your help this weekend.
1: There's always an opportunity to get involved, always people that need help. So you mentioned the example of the koala hospital, which is a really great example. Can you think of anything else in that vein?
0: Yes, in fact, there is um, a project that is getting a lot of attention now. And in fact, uh, it's, it's very necessary right this moment, dealing with in South Florida with the, the sea cows or manatees. Um, they had been at one point down to less than a thousand individuals and with conservation and changing in laws for boating, their population has come up to ten, eight, eight, ten, twelve thousand. But now they're threatened by both climate change affecting the temperature of the water that, that they live in, which is killing their main food source of so seagrass, and pollution coming off the land, which is causing algal blooms that have produced toxins. So the manatees are really, really struggling, and there are. Private groups now involved with with guidance from NOAA, the, the Oceanic and Atmospheric Agency, and the Fish and Wildlife Service that are extending out to help feed the manatees. They're corralling them a bit into bays where they can provide the food safely. And it's just lettuce. But the there's a, a program now called Save the Manatee, and it's always looking for volunteers because they need a number of people to help just <laughs> Come Go on Saturday to get off
1: some some lettuce <laughs> for these poor animals. Hear that? If you want to feed a manatee, here's your chance. <laughs> so anyway, there. Th- these are just two examples of many many exciting programs that um, are available that need volunteers. So. What if, Hugh, what if you wanted to do restoration at your own house? What if, how, could you, <laughs> how can you do that in your own, in your own neighborhood? Yeah, it's, and this is a, a really important question because I think it involves
0: kids. And everybody's familiar, I'm sure, with the issue with the monarch butterflies. They migrate from central Canada where they breed in the summer and they winter in central Mexico and their migration is one of the most famous biological events that happens, but it's been drastically interrupted by industrial agriculture through the Midwest, western part of the United States. And their main food source is a a plant called the milkweed. That's basically all they eat. And they they, uh, fly for a certain amount of time and they will lay eggs. The the caterpillars will grow and, and eat those milkweeds. They'll fly on down for another section of their migration. It happens approximately four times. You can, if you live anywhere where monarch butterflies exist, you can plant. You can take your kids out and plant some milkweed plants in the garden. the The pheromones uh, or the chemistry of the, of the of milkweed the butterflies will find them. You can help the process of that migration simply by planting a few plants of of milkweed in a corner of your garden they will find it we are again uh, as in the resource section there will be a couple sources places where seeds or plants of things appropriate for butterflies or bees bees are another thing where you you, there are certain plants that bees gravitate toward and we all know how important pollinators are for food production everybody has a small garden or a place even on a patio they could put some plants that attract bees. These are things you can do right on in your own backyard and with kids and get them to learn a little bit about the world around them.
1: Planting plants that native insects like and help the wildlife in your area. It's very easy to do. So what about, you know, a lot of people don't like to have a bunch of animals in their backyard. What would you say to, uh, about that? Not all kinds of animals, maybe. We don't need bears and cougars (laughs) in our yards. But (laughs) what about something nice like geckos or other insects?
0: Well, there are many, many beneficial (laughs) insects, uh, flying creatures. Geckos, are are, of course, they live in houses all over semi-tropical areas. Deserts have them. They're very friendly little creatures, and they uh, make a a sound everybody would recognize and they hunt mosquitoes so if you have a problem on, in some parts of the country where mosquitoes are bothersome a couple geckos will help you on it. <laughs> uh, you shouldn't have to go out and, and get a, a, a cougar to uh, be, uh, in the backyard.
1: Yeah, you gave me a great example actually of some blue, beautiful blue bees that live in, oh. in your house.
0: <laughs> yes, I, I guess I've done my own little bit. Um, it's somehow, some way, uh, a large um, I don't know if it's a bumblebee actually it, it's a it's a blue bee it's it's about the size of a of a cherry and about 15 years ago they they burrow into wood and I start seeing these giant blue black bees hovering around a carport and I started to find little bits of dust on my, the back of my car and it turns out uh, a colony of these blue bees decided my carport was the place they wanted to uh, put to live and they've been there for the better part of now 20 years, they keep away the wasps. Uh, they are completely harmless. Uh, I've had neighborhood kids come over and ask me, when are the bees coming back? Because <laughs> they, they, they found that they're really like, curious. And so, and it has happened every year. They just buzz around, they take a look at who's ever out there in the, the, the driveway, and then they go back doing what they're doing. And they help pollinate the trees. And I haven't had problems with wasps uh, largely since they were around.
1: Wow, that's great. Something I like to do uh, to get out into nature and do a little bit of restoration is growing organic food. Growing your own food in an organic garden can be really rewarding. If you've never grown your own food, it's one one of the best things. You get to put some time and love into it, and at the end you get a tasty treat out of it.
0: Well, the nice thing about the growth in organic mm-hmm. production, whether it's at the garden level or, or in commercial farms, you're getting away from pesticides and, and agrochemicals. And both of those products are a result from petrochemicals. They were developed largely after World War II for production agriculture. But the downside is they destroy the, the, the life of the soil, the, which is filled with bacteria and fungi which plants need to grow with and they kill uh, insects uh, pretty heavily beneficial and non-beneficial and so if organic growing if you can get a a good system of organic production you have controls uh, uh, that allow the plants to grow and um, you attract insects in that will be protective or attack anything um, non beneficial it, it, in fact there are stories and, and studies from the original Mesoamericans that planted po- corn, bean and squash and they did it for three reasons, the, uh, the corn they grew for food, also the squash dr- dr- attracted bees and beans are a nitrogen fixing plant that improved the soil so mixing the three of them allowed for them, the Native American people including the Navajo southwestern US all the way down into central and south america to have a very balanced diet.
1: And that uh, it's amazing to see too when you plant organically and do a different species like that corn beef corn bean squash combo. Uh it's amazing to see the garden bounce back if there was not much life in it before then things really start coming back to it and you can see that in a single season.
0: Well the combination of the three corn bean and squash is example of what has become the field of agroecology, where you take agricultural, ecological principles and apply them to agricultural production. Um, That's an entire field unto itself and growing pretty rapidly, but people involved in in the organic food movement are well aware of uh, agroecology.
1: And there's lots of opportunities and some interesting examples of people applying agroecology and sustainable uh, gardening into landscaping, and having food landscaping and all kinds of sustainable landscaping.
0: Well, that's what exactly the people in Singapore, they planted fruit trees along with their um, trees that were just for shade. And almost anywhere you go in the city, you could find a papaya or mango or or whatever it was, mangosteens, they,
1: they had fruit trees everywhere city is just full of fruit on its own. It's a very beautiful place, too. <laughs> that's amazing. So, Hugh, can you talk for a minute about what is a really exciting new field of uh, discovery, invention, education, and it's called biomimicry. Can Can you explain what that is for Yeah, listeners? sure, and it
0: is one of those things that it is so vast, the layers of opportunity, and very exciting, but it basically means that you're looking at adaptations that have evolved from a biological organism or system, and learning how to take that that substance or or design element and use it in some sort of industrial or commercial way, and so you're mimicking the biology into a problem that already exists in in manufacturing or uh, a production of something, and. They're, they're examples that range from the Navy using it for developing paints that don't attract barnacles to new new types of wings looking at butterfly structures. I mean, it's, it's a vast field by biomimicry and growing very, very fast. Tiny robots that are coming from looking at how spiders move.
1: Yeah, so essentially the idea is learning how nature builds and engineers things and how processes it, chemicals and how it builds.
0: evolved to evolution is very conservative when there is something that has been has evolved in a structure whether it's a, a, a plant structure or a muscle structure or a, a chitin of a shell or whatever it is and it works evolution stays with that And so things then continue to evolve, but that structure stays the same. So uh, it's learning what evolution has taken millions and millions of years to create that has worked and seeing how that can be applied to a problem or a product that is costly to make or doesn't work very well or it could be an entire alternative material for surgeries, for example.
1: That's an amazing, very exciting new field. And uh, that'll be included in our resources at the end. I would highly encourage anyone listening to give that one a read. So, Hugh, we've covered a lot of material. And obviously, as we said, this is a really huge topic. Uh, So if there's any central messages or take-home messages that people should know about ecology and restoration, what would those be? Yeah, um,
0: I hope in this three-part series... People have garnered some um, understanding uh, that uh, there are characters in common to all restoration initiatives. Um, uh, These include things like ecosystems are resilient. Given the chance, they can recover from degradation. And there certainly are a lot of places now that are definitely needing to be recovered. They're very degraded. Sometimes the process requires a kickstart for one reason or other, the ecological succession that is necessary to rebuild and restore the, the the location has been halted, and so the succession needs and reestablishment of biodiversity needs a trigger to get it going again. And there are tools that can be applied, ecological tools can be applied to do that, and sometimes engineering tools. Projects in, in restoration cover the gamut. They range from the, the scale of a landscape down to a home garden and everything in between, from the ocean to the rivers to the prairies to the forest. You can find projects to the backyard that would, can be restored with using some of the, the tools of ecology. Every restoration project, no matter where it is, is site-specific you can't, there's no one size fits all. Every project has its own needs and requirements for success. Um, the principles can be applied in different ways on different projects. and So the needs vary. So they're incredibly diverse and there's some, then that allows for very many ways to become involved. Practical tools are available to accomplish restoration and We will have a list of resources that offer a little more depth in what those uh, tools might be. There are practical ways to get started. Getting involved with the restoration project requires further education. They're very fulfilling, incredibly hopeful to be involved with, and fun. Doing one of these programs, you get involved and it's exciting. And when you see results, It makes you feel like you've really accomplished something. And so there's hope that that things can be changed from bad to better. (laughs) A a quote that you, Jordan, turned me on to, I had not heard it before, but it's, I think, very appropriate, that you don't have to save the world, but you can do your part. And as an ecologist once said, this home is ours, but not ours alone. And I think that's we live on a, a very biologically active world, whether it's your neighborhood or the, the, the rainforest. There's more here than just us, and, and learning about that is truly exciting and useful.
1: Well, thanks so much, Hugh. You've given us all a lot to think about, and I hope everyone listening has been inspired to do some ecology and restoration of their own on any scale from large to small.
0: Thank you very much.
1: Thank you all for listening to this three-part series that I got to do with Hugh Bollinger. I want to give a big thank you to Hugh, who's become a real friend and mentor to me throughout the process. Make sure to check out the resources for this episode, which were hand-curated by Hugh himself. If you'd like to learn more about us, visit us at paxnatura.org or drop us an email to podcast at paxnatura.org. Thanks, and see you next time.